Hi, welcome back to That's a Second Millennium. For episode 13, where we're talking about uh, the conference for the Society of Catholic Scientists uh, back on June 8th through 10th, that I had the good fortune to attend. Um, I'm Paul Giesting, and I'm talking to my friend, journalist, and Catholic radio personality, uh, Bill Schmidt. <laughs> yes, thanks. Yeah, it, it's good to be talking with you, Paul, and uh, so glad that you were at that conference because uh, I'm uh, very curious about it, and I think it's a very exciting step into the future for all people who are of the uh, uh, frame of mind that would uh, uh, follow a, a podcast like ours and follow discussions like ours. Uh, it's a really, really neat group of people talking about interesting things. So that would be my question to, to start this episode. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about the overall uh, tone and theme and purpose. Um, what, what, what would you want to uh, say as far as an overview of the, mm, the list of speakers, the list of topics, uh, and uh, how, how it all kind of uh, came together over the course of a few days? Yeah, it was, it was a very short conference. It went from Friday night, uh, all day Saturday, and then uh, Sunday it was really the, uh, the meeting itself was, uh, you know, we broke for lunch at about noon. And then we did have the uh, sort of membership meeting in the early afternoon that ended about 2.30. But, yeah, so, so really the, the, the core of it was the talks on Saturday. It was, uh, in passing, it was awfully nice to be at a scientific conference where there was a, a mass deliberately scheduled into the conference. Uh -huh. uh, that's, that's a nice touch that uh, you don't get at uh, secular science conferences. So, right. That. And the fact that they, you know, scheduled it first thing in the morning uh, because they actually, you know, paid attention, you know, pay attention to the uh, the the rules for fasting before communion. It's it's, it's altogether really a marvelous experience. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, but the talks in general. So there was. Uh, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They managed to get eight talks in on Saturday and three more on uh, wow. Sunday morning. So, and uh, they varied. Some of them were half-hour talks and some of them were hour talks. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a keynote by actually Edward Fazer, uh, the philosopher over in California. Huh. Um, I was listening to something. I, you know, I listened to the Word on Fire podcast, unsurprisingly. Oh uh, yeah. Bishop Barron put that out. Catch a lot of those too. Yeah. I think I, I want to say you know having having driven to the East Coast and of course this was not the only thing I did once I'm out on the East Coast I may as well see my college friends so of course there was the whole oh six college friends in four different cities over the course of what was it Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday that's that's typical <laughs> yeah I try to do it um, but my vacations are pretty exhausting uh, but fortunately they were cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was listening. I had a lot of time to listen to podcasts as I was driving to D.C. and then New York and then Eastern Ohio and then back here to Indiana. So Edward Fazer came up at some point. I think he's at least to some degree a crony of uh, of Bishop Barron, which uh, which makes complete sense. But uh, he gave a keynote talk um, on the first day, which the theme of the conference. The name. I'll put the uh, I'll put the logo of the conference up for these episodes uh, on the website because it's uh, it's, it's also square, which means it's exactly the format that the uh, 
the podcast uh, software once. But it, you know, the oh, theme okay. the title of the conference is <laughs> "Human Mind and Physicalism." So the whole question, and ha, you know, has been for a long time. And back in the 19th century, which Stephen Bard does an excellent job of presenting this problem in his book that we've mentioned a time or two before. Uh, what is it? Ancient modern science and ancient faith. Yeah. The situation at the end of the 19th century was pretty grim, and you could go. A, a nice coincidence is that you can go and see this sort of fossilized in the Catholic Encyclopedia from yeah. 1915, the one that's on uh, newadvent.org. Right. Which is a fascinating thing, uh, a very educational thing to just go, for example, surf first millennium popes. That, that in yeah, itself cool. is an interesting education in ecclesiology and how things have changed over the centuries. But uh, more to the present point, uh, you, can talk, you can look up the article about uh, materialism. Yeah, and yeah. at that stage in history, you know, 1915, of course, they being the people putting together the Catholic Encyclopedia, not necessarily being absolutely 100% up to date, because this, this does post-date 1905. But even then, you know, 1915 is when general relativity came out, and it was uh -huh. very early days for quantum theory. Quantum theory really kind of got put together in the 20s. So... Oh. They, you know, they they were facing the 19th century consensus that uh, you know it's basically the Laplace statement, you know, the the pretty famous one that if you if you were an intelligence that could know the position and velocity of every particle in the universe, uh, you would know the past and you would know the future because yeah. the laws of physics are completely deterministic, and there's no evidence, so saith the 19th century physicist, uh, there's no evidence that anything outside this tight, constrained box ever affects anything. So the idea that you have a soul that could ever actually cause you to do anything differently than you would have done otherwise, differently than the water molecules and proteins and whatever in your brain would, so to speak, force you to do in this completely determined system, um, that was philosophically very hard to swallow. And, right. and it was kind of a dark time philosophically to be a person of faith um, if you took that if you if you uh, if you took that too seriously. And there were there were always people who were, you know, poking at this sort of determinist juggernaut, but that it kind of ruled the field. Um, if you really thought about those things in the late 19th and early 20th century. And the thing about that is, that was demolished by quantum theory. It was just demolished by quantum theory. And people, as, you know, as, we, as we've talked about before, people like Einstein, um, a variety of other people, you know, never accepted that. And down to this day, there are people who don't accept that and are willing to go to... Um, dreadful lengths in terms of what they're willing to countenance as an image of the universe in order to avoid that. The, you know, they'll, they'll go as far as the many worlds hypothesis, which is a dramatic understatement, that every, every event that any particle, any subatomic particle in the entire universe undergoes splits the universe into at least as many branches as there are possible outcomes for that quantum event. And that would be, you know, at every 
and this is, this is where I'm going beyond my, uh, my current knowledge on the subject, but I guess every Planck time, every minimum possible subdivision of time, you know, whether this atom of U-238 has decayed or not would be an event, so far as I know. It's just, so there must be, I don't know, 10 to the 100 and something universes and more all the time. It's yeah, just, multi it's, it, yeah. it's conceptually beyond obscene. Way, way, way beyond obscene. Um, but people are willing to countenance that if that means the universe is deterministic, certain people. You know, so that, yeah. that exists in competition with the Copenhagen interpretation, which is that there's really chance. Things are really not determined. And there's actually a test that was devised, the Bell inequality. And if the, if the world was deterministic, the Bell inequality, as it's sort of standardly put together, as was described at one of the talks, actually, um, mm. his name was Valerio Scarani who is yeah. probably not Singaporeese, but he's based in Singapore. So uh -huh. he, he gave a talk about basically the Bell hypothesis and the, uh, the experimental tests, and that you know, tests that have closed more and more of the loopholes have taken place over the last 40 years, 30 years, 35 years. Um, that, you know, as, as it's standardly put together, if you get numbers below two, you might have a rule, you know, existing below the Heisenberg uh, principle, below the uncertainty principle, where you can't necessarily see what's going on. But you could, you could, you could take the theory that I don't know what the hidden variables are, but there must be some, or there can be some. Okay. So there really are rules. I just can't test it because I bang things around by hitting them with photons or whatever to test them, and I can't, you know. Therefore, the uncertainty principle keeps me from seeing them. Right. The Bell's quality is never below two. It's always somewhere in the 2.4 to 2.7 range, which means that things really must be random. It's a, it's a, it's an intricate. It's not intricate, but it's a. It's certainly not an argument you could uh, you could put together in a podcast, or at least I don't think it is. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. you need a blackboard <laughs> to explain the Bell inequality. Um, okay. So yeah. I won't go any further than that, but certainly it's it's a massively important uh, concept in modern physics. You know that backs up can... either you know so so the so the hidden variable theories are contradicted by experimental evidence. It is very hard to construct a, a deterministic theory that isn't something psycho like the hidden world or the many worlds hypothesis. So that yeah. and that's a huge change, as Barr you know points out. And, and, and as Arthur Compton pointed out way back in the 30s, the, the, um, the freedom of man the, that he wrote way back in, what is it, 35 or something, we've also mentioned before. Um, mm. So that's, And that's been clear. And, and they didn't even mention Compton the conference, but they had another litany, um, Payerls, uh, several other famous physicists from the mid-century, uh, even, even Heisenberg and Schrodinger themselves, I think, um, that... You know, we now have all the room in the world that we need for the spiritual to affect the material without breaking the laws of physics. It's an amazing shift um, in the philosophy, and that people have just not kept up with. I mean, we're still fighting materialists. It makes no sense. It's it's wow. clear at this point that the hypothesis. I mean, the the hypothesis that there, it's really random and there is no 
you know, you, you can be a materialist. That's not, it's not that we've contradicted that. But it's right. clear that belief in spiritual realities affecting the physical is on an equal logical footing with materialism at this point. But not necessarily among many of the scientific colleagues of the speakers. It's clear right? logically, but it's not clear um, sort of culturally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, other forces yeah. are propelling, continue to propel people in that direction that yeah. are social and not really based on, you know, solid philosophy or science. Yeah, but that's still fascinating, yeah. And so it must be a real sense of, uh, I'm trying to kind of, uh, I like that idea of um, exploring how just the, the tone and the interrelationships of a conference like this would be different from your typical scientific uh, conference. Not just the fact that uh, mass was included, but I would imagine that that the speakers and the uh, audience would share a kind of real neat sense of empowerment, in a sense, to to to, to be seeing this whole other dimension that helps the understanding of current uh, scientific knowledge that uh, is uh, enlightening and meaningful, potentially meaningful to the solving of problems and the service to uh, uh, humanity, uh, and yet sadly not being recognized by so many of their peers. Yeah, yeah, facing that that societal, um, you know, push in the other direction is, is a, it's very lonely. And yeah. it is, it is tremendously uh, comforting, you know, to know that other people see things the way that you do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, so, especially in a situation like this where it's a matter of, <laughs> there really is evidence that people are just, you know, looking past and trying to find some sort of excuse to, you know, to say, which, you know, of course we do about all sorts of things. We do it for political things. We do it for, you know, less, much lesser scientific and philosophic issues. But, um, you know, to, to say, to find someone else who says, who thinks the same way, you know, who sees the same, you know, conclusions you do. I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm right. not, you know, at least some other fellow traveler in this universe has, has yeah. seen things that I've seen. Yes. Yeah. So, but uh, when you mentioned the, um, the giving of evidence and the incorporation of evidence uh, that is so natural in any uh, uh, spiritual, uh, in any scientific uh, speech or presentation, um, the, uh, that, um, that, presentation of the uh, the spiritual side uh, does that still though get tricky um, because you can't really present spiritual related evidence in the same language even in the same sentence as you can in the usual um, scientific, language and style am i right or or uh, is that something that these 
scientists have uh, have mastered and have to offer all of us. <laughs> Mastery would be a bold claim that I don't think any of us would want to make. <laughs> Fair enough. But um, you know, the whole point is that the whole point is that we there has to be a way that you know this isn't some. I mean, the reality is. There is no, you know, we think of this gap. This gap is a, is a subjective reality that has has risen in, gosh, and it was a long time ago. I mean, the the conflict between spiritual and material, you know, goes back at least to, you know, are we thinking of the Zoroastrians? I mean, certainly Comanians. Well, you mm-hmm. know, all, all forms of spirit matter dualism. Um, you know, and, and this idea that there's some sort of gap, but then the modern, you know, distinction, between, you know, this this modern idea, you know, the modern flavor of this this idea that there is this huge gap between the two, um, right? You know, that's not real. You know, that's that's a subjective reality. You know, the the fact that people think that is a reality, um, yeah, but the fact that that, you know, clearly the universe just goes along and I, you know, what, whatever is going on inside my, you know, physical body, I mean, something has to be going on inside my brain that allows me to have the experience of consciousness and all of the, you know, the, the individual details, the qualia that are associated with that. And right. there has to be some way... Uh, there, there's some way that I make decisions, and this consciousness experiences the sensation of control over them. Oh. That has to be explained somehow. And, that, and there is a seamless, you know, what gap is there actually between my thinking of raising my arm and my actually raising my arm? Right. I mean, of course, right. you know, the, the the thought between the, the gap between deliberating on whether to do something and actually doing something, but there is no gap between you know this whatever reality, and I don't you know I have never heard even the actual attempt at an argument for you know a, a completely physical description of consciousness. I have only heard evasive language. I have only heard you know, more or less ham-fisted attempts to uh, to wave it away and pretend that it's just an, a quote-unquote illusion um, and not a problem. Although the, the Cartesian and Augustinian objection that something, even if, even if everything is an illusion, there exists something that's being diluted. Uh, right. I mean, that, right. That, that's an irreducible. That's, that's, there, there's no way past that. Yeah. Um, you know, so there is there, and that's still, and that's still not a thing that I even know of an argument for how that could be physical. Right. So there must be, there must be a connection. Now, there is absolutely no. I mean, you know, at this point, the direction of the evidence has led me to, you know, my, you know, my own personal hypothesis is that certainly just about everything that goes on in my consciousness, you know, could be linked to something going on in my brain. You could find right. neurons that are experiencing some voltage and some chemical potential oh. difference and so on um, for right. every little thing that I'm doing. 
and that has become, you know, that's gone for me personally, that's gone from something troubling to something fascinating, and it's led me to sort of, you know, I guess a greater sense that the creator has lent this dignity to matter to participate in this process, and then in mm. fact my human soul, you know, must have this material counterpart in order to do what it's meant to do, of the human yeah. being as a unity. I mean, that's that's this this whole long excursus has been to you know really to get me to the to the point where I can back up the what I mean by the statement the human being is a unity body and soul, not yeah. this yeah. you know sometimes it's called called a Cartesian duality where you know they're really totally separate things. The medievals yeah. had yeah. this tempting, difficult. Certainly, I can't say that I am completely comfortable with it. You know, the the Thomistic and you know other, I mean, generally scholastic statement that the soul is the form of the body, mm -hmm. um, which leads you, you know, pretty promptly back to, you know, the sort of Aristotelian designation of things having, you know, of, of trees having souls because they have a form. You know, this oak tree has a form. It has a, and as we would say now, that form is, you know, sort of encoded in its genetic material. And according right. to the rules of that form, it will, you know, it will process matter and grow into this, you know, without, you know, to our understanding, any spirit, you know, anything, and spirit just being anything that doesn't obey the laws of physics, um, you know, it's not limited by the laws of physics. Or, you know, it probably has its own rules, they're just not the same. Yes, yeah. So, so that brings you back to, that's a, that's a question of terminology, and that, that harks back to some of our previous podcasts about, is our metaphysics up to this? Are we going to need yeah. to devise new language to talk about what we now know? Um, yeah. yeah. We know. Um, and, and even though, for example, you know, I, I still see no um, reason why the, the, you know, the, the form and matter, um, you know, the hylomorphism, in fact, I, I, I still think it maybe works better now with what we know compared to what uh, what we knew in the 13th century, but yeah. we're still going to need to evolve. You know, we're, we're going to need to to walk it through all of the stuff that we know in modern science and engineering and political science and sociology. Um, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of work to do there um, that people aren't doing because they're kind of, I mean, well, because to park back to another podcast that we've done, you know. They're looking for the next big core, you know, revolution that overturns everything that we already know. Right. We're not, you know, we're not patiently going through the details and seeing what pattern, you know, the universe will show us if we're patient enough to look through enough of the, enough of those details. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, uh, you mentioned that there was a, uh, a philosopher uh, among among the speakers. Uh, and all it, it sounds like um, uh, the, the speakers, in order to have this broader toolkit of knowledge uh, within uh, science, um, need uh, some kind of uh, extra uh, degree in or uh, deep knowledge of metaphysics in order to 
make, uh, you know, in order to explain uh, what's going on, or even in order to justify why they are seeing things so differently from some of their more secular colleagues. Uh, but isn't that asking an awful lot to tie in uh, uh, all the advanced scientific knowledge, uh, the, the uh, faith and reason uh, benefits uh, that come with being an informed Catholic, and then metaphysics also that you have to kind of uh, inculcate into your own studies and then even share in some accessible way with your colleagues if you're trying to, you know, get your arguments understood by the people who uh, are inclined to reject you. Metaphysics sounds like it, it, it's uh, in a, a, an inevitable part of such a conference. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing is that... In and that it, it makes it troubles you, you know. The whole you can you can look at human history and see a lot of evidence uh, for providence. Um, I'm not sure what uh, what the divine providence had in mind when it you know allowed philosophy to go out into the wilderness and engage <laughs> right. in massively self-destructive um, exercise <laughs> in you know. Cartesian doubting all that can be doubted, which <laughs> yes. is basically everything. Well, right. whether logically you can doubt everything that can be doubted, psychologically it's clear that humans can doubt everything, um, yeah. whether they have a good reason for it or not. And and we've certainly slipped very far in that direction, both in the academic world and just in the everyday uh, uh, public square. Yeah, and that and that crippled philosophy to the point that. It was not ready. <laughs> it was not ready for showtime when uh, <laughs> when the when the twentieth century you know when the curtain uh, opened on the twentieth century and all of this crazy stuff started coming out of physics. Yeah, um, I don't think it was ready. Um, I don't. I mean, yeah, we didn't we didn't have enough of a living tradition of sort of constructive. I mean, so Chesterton's little you know biographical essay on Thomas Aquinas, which is, of course, fabulous, as are many of Chesterton's writings. I have found some things by Chesterton that I considered somewhat mediocre, but uh, those are hard to find. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few essays in in one book that I found that, like, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he, 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 he didn't bring his A-game that day. Um, but the, I think the dumb it's partly because uh, he was, uh, as a journalist, he was paid by the word sometimes. He just yeah. had to dish out a 500-word article just yeah. to pay the rent that day. <laughs> Once in a while, that happens to almost yeah. everyone. Right. Um, in any case, but but his his work on Thomas Aquinas is top notch, and his meditation, I think, at the end on Thomas Aquinas as opposed to modern philosophers, um, uh -huh. I believe it goes something like, you know, he, he'll he'll cite you a list of names. And they'll all tell you, or or even not even a list of names necessary necessarily, but he'll say. A modern philosopher will ask, will just ask that you accept this one absurd thing, and then he can show you this whole system. Thomas Aquinas right. just took common sense and made that his system. You know, yeah. That, and that, you know, that's a little sunny and optimistic. Of course, some of this is it goes back to, I think, some of the worst parts are in the supplement that was written after he... Well, after he died, I mean, he put down his pen after his after his divine vision toward the end of his life, 
you know, died yeah. far too young for our purposes, but obviously not for God's. And then, you know, brother Reginald and so on, you know, put down a supplement, you know, to address the questions that he had, you know, in some sense been committed to treat in the Summa Theologiae. And a, and a great deal of the stuff about, you know, what the bodies of the blessed are going to be like and, you know, what, what possibly the metaphysical properties of angels, I'm not certain. What, I am exactly not familiar enough with the Summa to remember which is which. Um, but some of those are a little... It, it, Whoever was writing those um, was a little too far out on that branch. They, Fair enough. They had that branch a little too far. But the core of, of Thomism and the core of the scholastic uh, synthesis is, is, I mean, as Chesterton says, it's, you know, tremendously, you know, and of course it goes, it goes back to Aristotle, which Aristotle is, you know, a great systematizer of common sense. You know, sometimes you can find things where you scratch your head and wonder why he made that statement. But for the most right. part trying to take, okay, this is, what, how do I explain this everyday phenomenon in the simplest possible yeah. way? It's just that he yeah. did that about so many things. And, uh, and of course, that's why the scholastics were building off of him. Right. Right. But <laughs> in any event, it just seems like uh, there's this uh, obvious tendency, especially toward uh, especially among the uh, the attendees at a conference like this, and the listeners uh, to a podcast like this, to uh, really be uh, extensively and enthusiastically interdisciplinary, and yet um, uh, our our uh, our scientific uh, structures, uh, our religious structures, even our university structures have actually in some ways gotten more siloed and modular and less friendly to that full breadth of interdisciplinarity if that's a word um, uh, that that uh, allows people to um, to see that the philosophical uh, uh, justification for, for for what we're meaning to do uh, it's it's it's, right. a, it's a conference with a huge with a huge mission and a huge goal. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, yeah. And and that broader yeah. question of interdisciplinarity, you know, you know, among people of faith and people, you know, and and not, um, that's you know, it's it's amazing we make as much progress as we do. It's it you know because we recognize that we must start doing this, but there is a lot, you know structurally, sociologically pushed up, you know, in opposition to to trying to think across disciplinary boundaries. Because we have I mean we have the we have the whole bigness of human knowledge against us at this point. Because no one right. no one unaltered human being um can can know, you know, two entire disciplines uh, well, I mean, certainly not five entire disciplines. Two is, you right. know, Two, two would make you pretty darn exceptional, um, as opposed to, you know, in previous ages, people could be, could be and were polymaths. You know, they would know philosophy. Yeah. They'd be physicians off very often, you know, especially in the, in the Eastern, you know, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, they'd be physicians. They would, you know, they'd, they'd dabble in botany and, and, and astronomy um, yeah. and mathematics, and, and they could make contributions to all of those. 
and now it's to the yeah. point where you can't you can't realistically make contributions to more than one branch, you know, of, of the four branches of mathematics. Right. And that's you know that's that's amazing. Um, so that's that's against us. And then there's the whole question of, well, there's so much money at stake. There's so much status. There's only so many professorships to go around. So we must Correct. measure people. We must make decisions on who to hire where. There's you know prestige and money issues for the university doing the hiring at stake. If they yeah. if they make you know if if they don't have a good strategy and they make poor choices, you know over and over again, a department will weaken and become less of a strength, and that means it will bring in less grant money, and that makes the whole world right. go round. Right. Um, so that's a that's a huge pressure because it's a lot easier to measure someone who's single discipline. Yeah, I think a lot of and, those uh, reward being single. It's interesting. A lot of students and their parents also go to a university wanting to, uh, in that sense, keep it simple. You know, just teach me skill A, and then have this other teacher teach me skill B. Just get me get me through so that I can, um, you know, get a good job uh, right. coming out. But, uh, that's the other challenge for all of these uh, uh, academics and good folks uh, interested in right. such uh, right. conferences. How do we, uh, yeah? How do we evangelize to the point of getting people just interested in this again, and to share what I'd imagine was a bit of a sense of joy that was at such a conference? That hey, we're onto something here. That's really a big picture approach to the universe, uh, and boy, we would like to share it with lots of other people. But uh, how the heck do we do it? It was that kind of uh, the tone or one of the. Um, I mean, it was it was it was a day and a half conference, <laughs> so right. Yeah, again, again, we have a bandwidth issue. Um, I, yeah. And I really, I, I guess, I feel that you know what was going on. You know, there there was this broad question of you know physicality, physicalism. Is is the physical world closed, or are there things that don't them, that aren't themselves? You know, the, the, that obey a different set of laws than the physical ones that can nevertheless interact with the physical world. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. and particularly, you know, the the most pressing question whether human beings are the or a or the um, phenomenon where that happens. So there was right. so there was intellectual grappling with that question, and then there was the fellowship aspect of it. I mean, I, th those are the two things that really you know that came out to me. And of course, uh -huh. the glorious thing is that with you know, gosh, there were surely over a hundred people there. I don't know how many over a hundred, but um, there were many other conversations going on that I wasn't part of. You know, where some of this uh -huh. uh, very likely was happening. Um, but uh, but that was that was what struck me personally. Oh, that's no, that's helpful. That's good to know, and it's also good to know that there were lots of conversations where I'm sure seeds were being planted. That can uh, that can uh, you know, slowly but surely help address the kinds of issues uh, I, I'm, I'm bringing to the bringing to the conversation. But perhaps I'm bringing too many uh, you know uh, big picture issues uh, to the conversation at this point. What I'd like to do at this point is uh, just end this episode with the promise to our listeners that um, uh, you can still bring a lot more concrete information about specific 
speakers and topics. And I will interrupt you uh, with the uh, with with all those big picture questions. Uh, I'd like to uh, just uh, uh, say so long now and promise our uh, listeners a, uh, a an additional look at this conference when we reconvene. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah, I think all so. Right. Start with uh, we'll we'll see we'll see where it goes, but I think we could very well start with Stephen Barr's talk um, yes. about the observer and quantum mechanics, which is which is a very an, a fascinating side to this whole question that we haven't even discussed yet. Um, oh, whether excellent. whether in yes. sense quantum mechanics demands a an observer who can't possibly be material in order for uh, for anything to actually happen, basically, which is a fascinating That's question. Right. So that maybe really we can open with that next time. Yeah. Oh, great. All right. Well, that, uh, I look forward to that, and thanks again uh, for this conversation. Uh, talk to you soon, Paul. All right. Thanks, Bill. All right. Take care. Thank you.